On this episode of the Boag World Show, we look at how to approach the design process. Are we designing in the right way to ensure the best user interface is possible? This season of the podcast is sponsored by Balsamic and Full Story. the Boag World Show, the podcast about all aspects of digital design, development and strategy. My name is Paul Boag and joining me on this week's show is usability, user interface, UX expert, Jason Parmental. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Did you like my introduction? I thought I'd I pick was, you up. I, I, I'm sure you could have stuffed a few more words in there, but it mm. sounded pretty good. It's made yeah. me sound very impressive. Well, I think the main, my main aim was to big you up so I could then say, oh, and Lee's on the show, who is a technological Luddite and can't even work out how to log into Skype. So I've had a little bit of a problem. Yes, I admit it. So I'm just your foil. Okay. Basically, yes. But obviously every word I said, Jason, I meant 100%. It's so good to talk to you again. It's been a while. How's life? Uh, things are Things are going well. Thank you very much. What are you um, up to these days? Um, I am, am running the design and strategy and development team at a company called Isovera in uh, just outside Boston. Okay. And so I've been doing that for uh, almost two years now. And, um, and then still doing lots of uh, talks and workshops and writing about web typography. Um, more recently with variable fonts, I've been... Um, I've been booked up quite a lot this year. I'll, I'll be speaking at Novena Part and Typo Labs in Berlin and Smashing Conference in Freiburg. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a busy year. Well, variable fonts are the cool, the cool trendy thing, aren't they, yeah. at the moment? <laughs> well, I will stand by my claim that they are going to be the biggest thing since responsive design itself. Now, go on. You've got to back deal. that up. Go on. Why, why? I mean, surely we're just talking about making fonts a bit bigger or a bit smaller. I mean, what's the big deal? Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm <laughs> going to get the pitch now. <laughs> I can tell. There was a big breath and then, okay. Go on. Go on then. Um, all right. So I, I don't want to derail the whole show about it. But, no, that's fine. Um, so there's three ways, I think, that they're going to be uh, really transformative. One is that it gives us a design vocabulary that we haven't had on the web. Um, right. In all the axes of variation from width to weight to slant, um, optical size, uh, all different manner of um, permutations of the typeface itself, all within a single file, mm-hmm. which leads us to the performance gain that Ooh. you get from that. Yeah, of course. So you'll have uh, no, no penalty to have that greater design vocabulary so we can be more expressive in our design and be more performant and have all of that with only one or two font requests and it's all animatable and uh and variable within css and then the third aspect of this is what i think really transforms what we think of as good typography in itself really at its core Mm -hmm. because we can tailor the type to the context in which it's being viewed. So we could make the type slightly narrower on a small screen to fit more characters per line. Um, ah. We can also react to things like ambient light. So the web API doesn't work that well, but in, uh, in a native app, you could increase the grade of the text when the light level is lower. Um, oh, so, that's cool. Yeah, and think of how that as an accessibility aid if you enable that through the UI for someone with low vision. That's and, just brilliant. And so text grade, uh, the difference between that and weight is that it doesn't reflow the text. So your design system remains intact. It doesn't mm-hmm. reflow anything. It just slightly increases the, um, the stroke weight all around mm-hmm. um, to give it slightly more contrast from foreground and background to make it easier to read. Wow, that sounds very cool. cool. So, Lee, have you yeah. have you done anything? Have you looked at variable fonts yet? 
I played with a code pen, um, sort of a demo example, and I was quite surprised just how many different things you can kind of interact with. I was expecting weight, but I wasn't expecting like adjustable X height of characters. Ooh, right. All these other little things. Um, yeah. And you could make uh, you could make a single font look very kind of different and customized. I didn't know whether that was a bad thing or a good yeah. thing. It's like anything. It's dangerous if it's it. in the wrong yeah. hands, isn't it? Right. Well, yeah, exactly. it's, but, you know, I think that's always been true of every design hmm. iteration. Yeah. Um, but, Absolutely. you know, that the X height um, along with that is the height of the ascenders and descenders. So one of the ah. little demos that I was working on for uh, one of the type companies is like a really big headline that you might want to set the line height really close together to create a big solid sort of unit. Mm -hmm. um, but then the ascenders and descenders might collide. But mm. you can have a, a variation axis that makes those descenders slightly shorter. Yeah. So like awesome. the bottom portion of a G you could like bring up just a tiny little bit so that you could still get like a really nice typographic impact with that headline without having the characters bump into each other. I, I did, uh, but if I was a type designer, I would be spinning in my proverbial grave at this point. Well, but because that's the... just it, though. It's only what the type designer allows. It's not yeah. something that you're forcing. It's only yeah. what the type designer chooses to expose oh. as an axis of variation. Right. So they could say you so can't like... mess with the X height, for example. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I suppose it's becoming, your fonts are becoming responsive, like we didn't expect our designs to start becoming a single column and breaking up, but now it's mm, part right. of you know, what is expected of a design. So I guess if you're designing variable fonts, you define what you can vary. Yeah. Well, so I did wonder what kind of effect it will have on browser performance, because all this new maths is now being expected of the browser. And I'm not quite I sure. haven't seen any issues with that so far. I mean, I've been working with them pretty much since they were introduced for about a year now. And, right. um, and it's, it's not really any different than rendering any other type. Hmm. Um, okay. So the maths is happening kind of as it's displaying and then it's all done and that's yep. it. I yeah. suppose it wouldn't be doing anything whilst the page is. Yeah. So, I mean, it, on yeah. all the stuff that you know we do to animate it is really just more for showing people what's happening. Yeah, that's true. So what I mean, what's the browser support like? Is the obvious question. Um, it's remarkably good for something that's only been around for a year. Um, full support shipped in Safari um, and iOS across mm -hmm. the board mm. in September with High Sierra and iOS eleven. Um, it's also shipped in October. Uh, in Chrome on Mac and Windows, and it's in active development in Edge and Firefox, slated to ship this spring, probably May timeframe. Good. And I um, imagine, I imagine, you know, the fallback isn't too painful. Either presuming you don't do anything ridiculously radical with with the fonts yep. you're using. Yeah. Yeah. It it does make that a little bit trickier, but also um, you to keep in mind that. Um, that's also going to change because they're, they've built support into the OS. Right. And so it's quite likely that we'll see variable fonts shipping in the OS. Well, actually, ah. they are. Windows has one called Bondschrift um, that just has a weight axis, but it's there. And, and technically, mm. Safari, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, San Francisco on the Mac essentially is a variable font. Right. Um, that incorporates a lot of the same technology ideas. It's not exposed in the same way, but that's so, you know, pretty soon, though, we'll have fallbacks that are actually also variable. Ooh, I like it. This all sounds yeah. very exciting. Yeah, it's, um, it's gotten me excellent. quite excited this year. And, and, and what I love is the, the reaction that I get from designers and developers and brand owners is equally enthusiastic because there's something there for yeah. everyone. Yeah, that's very true. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, we all win from it. Because, I yep. mean, the, the, the bit, if I'm honest, and this is probably a sad reflection of, of me losing my design heritage, but the bit I'm most excited about is the idea of the performance benefits of not having to have lots of different versions right. of the same font effectively being downloaded. That's that's brilliant. Seems so wasteful. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, it lets us... Having to decide which weights you need as well, that's don't like having to decide. Yeah. Well, yeah. and that's, you know, that's something that um, 
You know, in print design, it would be pretty normal for you to say at some mid-level headline, I kind of like the medium weight. I don't mm-hmm. really want the bold. Mm. And and it it lets you fine-tune all of those things to get just the right kind of hierarchy. Mm. And and I, you know, Mark Bolton, I think, was the one lamenting whether or not art direction is a thing on the web. And I think it could be. Mm. Bringing yeah. tools like this back in. Um, and you could even build a lot of that into the content management system. Yeah. Actually create, like, expert design ability to typeset a headline. Mm-hmm. rather than just flow the text in. Mm. I mean, the other thing that I like about it is, again, I think the more tools we get typographically, the better. Because, you know, so many websites kind of crowbar in imagery just to add some visual interest. Right. And they don't actually add any value to the design itself. So if you've right. got really good quality design tools then that's you know sorry typographic tools then that enables you to do much more it's good i totally agree okay so i mean that's not none of that is what we're supposed to be talking about but that's actually a lot more interesting than what we are going to talk about um and that said the entire season is supposed to be about the fundamentals of user interface design and you can't get much more fundamental than yeah. um you know something like this really so so there we go so it, it does have a purpose of some description we're going to go with that okay um what i did want to what we are going to be talking about in this show is we're going to be talking about workflows and um you know how we go about uh you know the process that we use to design these days how we go about doing design what's involved in it etc cetera, etc cetera. so with that in mind, I thought it'd be quite cool. I'm quite interested in what tools you guys use these days, right? Because obviously things have, have, have changed a lot since my day. Um, uh, and so, you know, what do the cool kids use these days? I mean, obviously we've got things like Sketch and InVision. I, even I use those. <laughs> but well, what, I, what else? Um, Adobe XD has come a long way. Um, really? That is, yeah, yeah, it's really turning into quite a good tool um, in, in a pretty short amount of time. Um, it's, it's got, now it's gaining a lot of the similar features that Sketch has, but it also has uh, some really neat things about creating repeating elements. Um, so you, you know, kind of mock up a card and then you can sort of click and drag and just make multiples of it in a grid. Oh, almost um, a bit like you get from using craft in sketch. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it, it sort of predated that. So they kind of scooped them on that feature a little bit. Um, and now they both have the ability to tie in pretty easily with tools like Zeppelin, which are really great for creating that bridge between design and development. It can sort of create effectively a, a, a style guide out of a, a out of the the main source file. Ah, um, that's quite so, useful. Yeah, it makes it for for really good handoffs between design and development um, to really you know create that um, quick documentation of the design that you've been working on. Also, it has the benefit of ensuring design consistency if you're using you know, multiple teams, etc. Yeah, well, and it exposes things that you missed pretty quickly. So if you used slightly different styles in different areas they're going to show up as totally separate objects and and you'll start to see where you might have missed something and and set a headline slightly differently from one page to the next or or something like that yeah um figma's looking pretty cool too that's an entirely online Mm. one have you looked at that lee yeah i've looked at that um it's pretty much sketch in the browser apart from a few little things it hasn't got and it's got a few extra little bits and bobs, which, um, yeah, very, very promising. Although for something, I know you can download a, a kind of um, offline version, something a bit browsery, which I'm not quite comfortable with at the moment. But uh, um, I, I regularly seem to do every project in a new tool. <laughs> I'm just a kind of natural <laughs> explorer of new, new tools. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I've tried Figma, I've tried Sketch, I've tried XD. Um, is Reflow still a thing? Macaw. Uh, but then I always come back to this, this underlying 
you know, just use HTML and CSS. And I'm, I'm still looking for the ultimate tool that can take the power of HTML and CSS and do it in a way that is more designery. But, um, hasn't happened just so yet. what do you normally work in then lee are you ma mainly working in html and css straight away well hmm. it depends as with everything else it depends on how much you've got to kind of show up front i try to get into the browser as quickly as possible because certain things can be quicker but then trying to get a feel look and feel across is far quicker in a in a classic mm. design tool um and Sketch has been the go-to recently, probably because of all the plugins yeah. that are available to, to fill the gaps. Um, well, so if you need to prototype, you can plug it in and do things that Sketch wasn't designed to do originally. Yeah, those are some of the things that we found pretty interesting. We, uh, we've played around with most of these things in the office, and we ended up trying to standardize as much as possible on Sketch so that we could share things... Uh, mm -hmm. And one of the designers started working on sort of a, a starting point file uh, for wireframes and then also for, for comps that sort of had a lot of our, the basic things that we would want built in, sort of like starting, you know, with Pattern, pattern Lab. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we work with Pattern Lab a lot specifically in the development process. So we tr that's kind of our path is going from... Um, well, we do things, uh, we start with information architecture, content modeling, wireframes, and once we've worked those things out, then we usually get started into style tiles, um, which could really be done in anything. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, but usually sketch, because we've got some templates to start with there. And then once we get to an interior page mock-up from there, and we get approval on one of those as we work our way up the website towards the home page, we can actually start breaking that down into patterns and pulling it into code. So that way we can very quickly start to see how these things behave in the browser. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So a similar approach um, with us. Um, kind of simultaneously doing wireframes, either static or interactive. Um, and developing the kind of aesthetic side separately, but simultaneously um, with mood boards, style tiles, that kind of thing. Yeah, sketch. But trying to get trying to get that kind of componentized um, aspect as quickly as possible, and if possible in the browser. Talk, talking of the the componentized aspect of it, um, and when you're doing that in Sketch, are there any plugins or tools or that kind of thing that make creating those pattern libraries within Sketch and then sharing those library elements between designers? Oh, Is there anything yeah. like that? Well, there's the there's mm. this the notion of symbols is pretty central in Sketch. Yeah, that's true. You could use that. So I, that's, that's what we've been using quite a bit. But then there's um, craft is really helpful for, you know, I think for starting to, to create some of these things and, and give them a little bit more life so that you can try them with different sets of content and, and that kind of thing. Mm. I got to say, I mean, these, these days the tools are just so good. You know, it it's actually making me wish I was doing design again. Um, you know, I do bits and pieces of like prototyping and wireframing is about as designy as I ever get. So, you know, I'm doing stuff in Sketch and it just pulls you in. And, you know, all of these tools and creating the animations you can do and stuff like that. It makes me hanker for the days that I was a, a UI designer and I just sat in front of it all day because it it's just so easy. The young people today don't know they're born. <laughs> Boy, it didn't really take us long to devolve into the old man shakes fist at sky mentality. If I'm if I'm involved, it happens very quickly. But it's true. They got there's such great tools these days. It's really cool. Oh, it's, oh no, I've, I've been trying to tell Ed in the office about Sketch. He's a Photoshop oh. user. He won't come out of Photoshop. He was umming and going, "Oh yeah, that's great. Sketch looks fantastic." Did he use oh, it? Oh, <laughs> see, he's he's terrible. stuck in the past. The well, only thing that I, saves him like is he's such a... years younger than me. Sorry? <laughs> and he's like 15 years I know. younger than me. He's a Luddite too soon. But, you know... I, 
The, but the I only thing that, that saves him is he's such a damn good designer. So you could well, give him exactly. I can't. You could give him crayons, yeah. and he'd produce a great design. <laughs> Absolutely. I I think there's uh, one one of the things one of the little notes that um, you had in the in the show prep was you know about whether or not the the tools matter, mm. and I, I got to thinking about that. I think it's really relevant that. Um, to what we've been talking about. Uh, there's sort of two criteria that I, I tend to to consider them by. And one is whatever the tool is, it shouldn't slow down your thinking. Mm. You know, you've got to be comfortable enough in it to, to sort of sketch freely. And, yeah. uh, you know, for me, it's I think Illustrator is probably the one that I'm most comfortable in um, because I've I've been using Illustrator and Photoshop since like versions like two or three. And, and so, like, they're very much in my sort of DNA. Mm. Um, but then the second half of that is it has to improve the communication of ideas between the designer and the client and the developer. Mm-hmm. And, mm. and that's where you, that tension comes in because you might be really great in Photoshop um, or, or InDesign, for that matter, um, and maybe you're really comfortable working that way, but if it's not a smooth transition between you and the person that has to put it together, then that just creates inefficiency that's that's pretty hard to get over sometimes. Mm. It wastes a lot of time. Mm. Communication is absolutely vital with these tools, which actually transitions me very nicely into talking about our sponsor, um, or our first sponsor, which is Balsamic, um, which is one of the tools that we've been talking about, basically. It's a, um, uh, a tool for wireframing in particular. Um, so very the very early parts of the process, when you just want to quickly and easily um, create you know, and show off um, you know, possible directions. And it's like sketching, but electronically and faster, basically. Um, now, it does have a desktop app, um, and you could go by the desktop app. But the, the real interesting stuff is, is their cloud-based app that they use now because it's great for that collaboration. It's great for ensuring a communication between various team members, you know, talking about ideas, working on something together. It was interesting. I was working with a client recently, um, and they had this – they were talking about having a meeting, you know, and, and the minute any client talks about having a meeting, I get depressed, um, where they were talking about, you know, bringing all of the – various stakeholders together into a room to work on you know work out what they needed to do and what this this thing needed to do um and they would have gone round and round in circles and everybody would have gone away with a slightly different impression of what it was that was agreed and what was going to be built and all the rest of it so I, instead i suggested why don't you do it as a workshop exercise and get people you know creating different possible approaches to the interface using uh, balsamic and that's exactly what they did. And it went incredibly well because Balsamic is so easy. You know, anybody can kind of pick it up and have a go at it, um, which makes it great for that kind of collaboration and experimentation. So you could try when, a third. Sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I've been a huge fan of it since it launched. I mean, I mm. think I used it while it was still in, uh, well, in beta. I, mm -hmm. I'm going to pronounce yeah, it Yeah, well done. But um, <laughs> I... Uh, the thing that I love about it is this had come up, I think this might have been Jared Spool recently, about that that fidelity conundrum. Yeah. You know, and, and like working in balsamic is like working with a Sharpie and you just can't get any more high fidelity than that. And that's perfect. It keeps you from mm -hmm. wasting your time making something that looks like a comp. Yeah. Absolutely. And I fall into that all the time when I prototype. It ends up looking too good and then people don't know what they're looking at. Are they looking at, a, you know, a sketch or are they looking at a final design? What's this thing meant to be? And it's funny, every single guest that we've had on every week that we talked about by Summit have gone, oh, yeah, yeah, we use that. We use that. So um, if you're not one of the three people in the world, I don't know why they're bothering basically being a sponsor. I think everybody already uses it. Um, but if you're not one of the three people in the world that's using using balsamic then you can get a 30-day free trial um anyway but if you go um and sign up for that 30 30-day free trial and then go into the billing part when you create a free account and you enter the code into that which is balsamic boag all one word you'll actually get three months instead of one month um, and you can get that by going to balsamic.cloud so there you go well, I mean, we've kind of 
we've we've kind of already kicked off the discussion portion of the show, but um, uh, and and done some of the questions. But that's kind of cool and and good. But what we want to look at is is more broadly this this issue of collaborating, working, how we how the workflow should operate. Um, so as we were talking about wireframes and um, with Balsamic, why don't we continue on that that vein? I'm really interested in, in when you guys choose to jump into sketch and when you choose to wireframe something and when you choose to prototype it and when you choose to do it in HTML, I mean, how do you make those kinds of choices of which tool to use at which time? Well, one for at Isovera, we were primarily a Drupal development shop. So that's, um, that's kind of a natural part of, of this, the stuff that we work with. Um, so we often will have some wireframes of key flows early on, um, but pretty quickly after we've identified the main kinds of content and what the fields are and everything, we actually start working right in Drupal, mm. and a lot of the prototyping happens there. Mm-hmm. So mm. we're, you know, it's, it's the fastest way, you know, if we, we, we use Envision for more static prototypes, um, where, you know, you've made a few different screens in Sketch or Balsamic or whatever, and you just want to test some different kinds of interaction. Um, and it's great for creating that common conversation between you and the client in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once we've figured out the kinds of content, we just go right. We have um, the starting point theme that we created for Drupal is sort of black, white, and gray kind of wireframing. Yeah. And, um, and so it, it's a good starting point for us to build out the content model in the CMS, build out the basic navigation. Now you can start to click through it and maybe do some usability tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also work with the client right away to see if they can actually enter the content that mm-hmm. they need. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the, the biggest downfall that we've seen is that until you have the client actually in there creating content, you will miss things. Yeah. Um, you'll miss connections, you'll miss fields, you'll miss opportunities. And once you can sit them down and say, okay, let's see if you really can put your press release in. Um, you know, if you can put your product information in the way you expect and mm-hmm. um, and do all those things, then the the actual build process is going to get delayed and all the you could spend all this time prototyping and designing and it's all going to be wrong because you don't have the right fields or or relationships mm. built into it. I actually uh, I, I take exactly the same approach, you know, that that the sooner you can start putting stuff into um, a content management system, the better. You know, even if all you're doing to begin with is just blank pages with with some you know navigation that links between them, because that's yep. enough to t- test an information architecture. Right. Um, and then you can start introducing bits of layout, just as Lee was talking about. You know, of, of doing some design in the browser. You start adding typography, a bit of layout, a bit of color, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, the content people can be in there just putting bullet points in to begin with, or questions that they want to answer on different pages, and right. uh, and you can kind of increase the fidelity both in terms of design and content within the actual thing you're building you know within the actual cms and and it seems to work really well especially on very content heavy sites and maybe doesn't work quite so well if you're looking at something like a web app but certainly in the content heavy stuff yeah i mean i it also cuts down on training with the client later on Mm. i mean because that way they're working in the system you know from from the very early stages Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I, i mean i've been doing this and you could really do it with any CMS. I mean I've been doing it with with Drupal based sites with different teams like this for six or seven years and, and it's really I think allows us to build a much stronger bond with the client because we're working so closely with them at every stage rather than come in for a workshop, then go away and do a bunch of work and then come back and then go away again and mm. um, it keeps those points of interaction happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Lee, I mean, does that mean that, you know, design comps are dead? Do you do you still ever produce design comps? Oh, yeah, definitely. 
um, because it's that speed to creativity. Um, sitting in front of a, a code editor isn't a very no. sort of um, inspirational <laughs> way of getting started. It can depend on so many things, timescales, um, budget. But that really interested in hearing about prototyping inside Drupal because um, we we did it twice with Drupal 7 because we're mainly Drupal based here um, and I can't think why we stopped I think it may have been just a lack of um, knowledge of building content types and views and everything all the Drupal collateral from mine and um, you know front-end developers who aren't mm -hmm. necessarily Drupal developers to set all that up. So then that involved a lot of developer time right. doing things. But whether, I mean, Drupal 8's improved a lot of things, might probably be worth trying mm. again at that. Because I, I tend to use this other CMS called Grav, which is just oh, a file-based yeah. system. Um, and it's really easy. You have to mess around with databases, but it's not Drupal, so you're not working within the constraints. Right. And you're not doing all the things you just mentioned about getting the client in there early and identifying you know, what, what's yeah. working for them and what isn't. So, yeah, I think definitely that, that's just made me think we should try mm. it again. I should mm. try it again. Well, one of the things that we've found kind of central to making that work is exposing the different people different in different roles to to Drupal in different ways. So the designers uh, who are doing some of the UX and IA work um, need to have enough familiarity with Drupal to understand what a content type is, what are how do you yeah. add fields and relationships and that sort of thing. Um, so I have them work with a developer on a content model document. Um, and oh, yeah. and that helps increase their level of familiarity with it, and and then similarly, whoever's doing the front end theming part has to understand enough about how Drupal content types work and views, which is basically like database queries for content, and yeah. uh, and having that familiarity with what's next to you in you know in that next job over um, mm. really helps everybody communicate better, um, and we you know create these central points of. Um, first, it's a content model document, and then it's actually going into the admin and trying it out. Um, does this flow nicely? Should we reorganize it? Um, one of the th nice things with Drupal 8, and, uh, you know, again, I don't want this to be a Drupal advertisement, but um, <laughs> but it allows you to, to customize the admin ordering of things as well as the what comes out um on the visual side of it once you publish it. So you know, you can tweak the ed the editorial workflow mm -hmm. pretty easily. Mm. And that's that's really helpful. I think that's a really important thing to do and it's often in my opinion heavily neglected to think yes. about the client's experience, the content producer's experience, which is, you know, it's just as important, especially when it comes to kind of teaching them best practice about writing for the web and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, all of that should be baked into the content management system so that when they sit down to write in the content management system, they're actually getting good advice about how to do so. I mean, going back to, to what you were saying about exposing different people to each other's roles, I mean, there's no doubt that to get the kind of approach that you're talking about working, you have to work very closely with the developers. So I'm kind of quite interested in, in how both of you achieve that working relationship. So Jason, what, from your perspective, because, you know, obviously you're the head of the design and UX and UI side of things. So how do you work with developers? Well, one of the reasons why I was... Uh, interested in actually joining Isavera is I'm in charge of all of it, oh. and, and I like that. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I actually manage both the design and development team, and uh, and I do my best to really think of it as one team. Mm -hmm. And um, there's only one point in time where I've worked for an agency where design and development were both done within the same company. And I found that to be really kind of unnatural. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So I'm a much bigger fan of that taking place within a single company. Oh, right. Um, it's just there aren't that many companies that do both of those things really well. 
Okay, um, I thought you were saying you found it unnatural hmm. that those things did happen in the same company. But I, um, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, yeah. it, it, yeah. it creates a barrier when you're outsourcing development elsewhere. You, I mean, obviously you can do it. I mean, lots mm. of companies do, but I, I think that it's much more successful when the designers and developers are in the same meetings, they're mm -hmm. um, in the same Slack channels, they're sitting nearby if they're in the office, and that leaning over and asking a question can mm. become really, really mm -hmm. natural. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no trying to figure out what somebody meant. Um, mm -hmm. It's just... It cuts down on the time it takes, because you know, if you have to hand something off, you've got to be so much more detailed and document everything and mm. um, and write up every other possible way you could interpret what you mean by this, and and then someone's still going to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. They still misunderstand, and they'll have their own vision of what that means when they read it. Mm. But when you sit down together, and 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 then you know like lisa it's in when it's in code you're actually really both looking at the same thing and only then do you really know what like how it's actually going to work i and, remember a, a great sorry to interrupt you a great example no, okay. of, of that kind of looking over the shoulder type thing um where i was sitting in a bar with um uh, joe stump and uh, daniel <laughs> burker from back in who both worked at dig back in the yep. day when dig was a huge and joe was telling this story about daniel um was i don't know making some change or other to the dig badge you know where it said how many people had um, dug it and because joe was in the room or, or i don't think he was in the room but he he, he came into the room and walked past daniel's desk and saw what Daniel was saying and uh, doing and leant over and said something along the lines of, if you do that, it's going to take about 200 extra servers, you know. <laughs> and, and you don't get that. You don't get that. Yep. So, so what, you know, what ends up? You know up? what that was? I, was? I remember that. Oh, really? That was a designer and developer panel at Future of Web Design. Oh, was and it? I think that might have been when I met you for the very first time. Ah. This was, and I... I talk about that conversation with people all the time about mm. the importance of having that common language between design and development and um and they used the word expensive mm -hmm. and that was their way of saying okay what you're trying to achieve is gonna you know that's gonna take like a couple hundred extra physical servers like yeah. none of this virtual silly stuff but like physical yeah. hardware that we have yeah. to go install in racks and um, and then being able to work back and forth to get at the design intent, they wanted to convey reputation, mm -hmm. and they wanted it to be somewhat real-time, mm -hmm. but it didn't have to be absolutely real-time. Mm -hmm. And so that's how they ended up arriving at a solution. But yeah, that that has stuck with me now for 10 years. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it's a really good story that that summarizes how closely designers and developers are linked with one another, mm -hmm. and how often we we just kind of ignore that. And and the problem is, is what then happens is the designer goes off and designs something that's impractical, shows it to the client, the client then signs it off, and so, and so as far as everyone's concerned, that's what's going to be built, and only then is it shown to the developer who, you know, suddenly becomes the bad guy, which. You know, <laughs> well, guilty. Uh, yeah, yeah. You've got a habit of doing things like that, Lee. Yeah, well, but you're in quite an interesting if... position there, Lee. That that you're not sitting side by side with a developer. So I'm quite interested in how you deal with this problem. Mm. Well, I mean, we we tend to have weekly calls with clients, um, and developers are always in on those calls at all stages. But um, ah. sometimes you don't really know how hard things are until you try it in Drupal. Mm. And, you know, the more experience you get, the more things are, you know, it's, it's more obvious what is going to be tricky. But sometimes it doesn't really work itself out until the developer really puts their head into it and think, oh, hang on, this is going to be really quite difficult in Drupal or anything. So um, it's one of those things we still battle with, and I am guilty, as I say, of designing things, which and I'm, I'm trying to keep it in, in my mind at all times, you know, run things past people, but I, I have created things which have been an absolute pain for the back-end developers to integrate. But they get there. And I like to think of it as a challenge. Yeah. For them. 
So. Well, it's, <laughs> I mean, it is difficult, isn't it? Because on one hand, you know, you don't. Why should you have to compromise the user experience based on <laughs> yes. the technology? And I can hear you yeah. saying that as yeah. I'm doing it. <laughs> Which is true on one hand, but we live in the real world as yeah. well with budgets and timescales yeah. and things. So, well, yeah. I, I think it's important to have a balance there. Mm. Because I think when you... Uh, and, and so this is... Oh gosh, this is like the age-old thing. Should designers code? Like, now mm-hmm. we can really go off the rails. <laughs> mm. but, um, but the argument that people place against designers understanding code or the CMS or anything else is that it would constrain their thinking. Mm. And then the flip side of that is you design something dumb that can't be built or Mm -hmm. whatever. And um, there has to be a middle ground because then, you know, without that, we don't make progress. We don't try something new Mm. and everything Mm -hmm. all looks the same. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think it's a matter of um, needing to know enough to guide, but not let that be a limiter. And if you come back and say, you know, it's really important for us to be able to do something individualized with this H1 because of these reasons. Um, And yes, I get that's going to be a little complicated, but let's invest a little bit here because it can then pay a dividend across the whole site versus spending time on this one-off feature over here. Maybe we could do that more simply. Yeah. And so then you, you have to have the conversation and find the trade-offs to see where it's worth it for that extra effort because you get a much bigger payoff over time. It's all, as you say, it's all about having the conversation and discussing, which, which yeah. brings me nicely on to the other player in this little game that we do of designing user interfaces, which is the stakeholders, the client, the you know whoever it is, whether internal or an external client. I mean... It always strikes me we're a bit shit at dealing with these people um, <laughs> and that we tend to treat them a little bit like the enemy. I mean, what what have you... I mean, both of you guys have been doing this for a long time. I'm kind of interested in in what you've learned about dealing with clients or not even... Even the word dealing has kind of got the wrong tone sure. to it. <laughs> Collaborating, I, working with clients. Um, I... I've written about that in the past. I think language is hugely important. Um, and I, I really work very hard to avoid that confrontational sort of mm. antagonistic stance, um, saying that you're defending a design mm-hmm. um, or dealing with clients. Uh, you know, all of those. I think those words are important because they say something to ourselves. Mm-hmm in how we're thinking about it. So I think the first step in thinking about it differently is, is teaching yourself to use different words. You need to educate someone about it. Um, or you need to find that alignment of interest. Mm-hmm. What is it that will motivate that stakeholder to go along with this design direction? It has to accomplish a goal for them as well as it accomplishes a goal for the user. Mm. So by thinking about why this would be a good answer. Um, If somebody is in sales, how is this going to help increase sales and Mm -hmm. lead conversion? Um, If somebody's in marketing, how is it going to make this content more shareable? Mm. Um, You know, I I think you have to do your homework in educating yourself about those stakeholders and those clients to understand their motivation and pain points better. Mm. Do you think there's also, Lee, do you think there's a degree whereby we don't show work early enough as designers to to clients and stakeholders? Because it strikes me that we can get very, very precious about the designs that we produce and because we've poured hours and hours into them. And so that makes us defensive when people criticize. But maybe if we showed stuff earlier, that would deal with that problem. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why the sort of workflow that it sounds like both um, Headscape and Jason's company do, the creating the kind of mood, the styles, and that takes away some of this kind of preciousness because you're going in the right mm. direction and they're kind of signing off in that direction. Um, then you've got to weigh that up against them actually getting it. Um, right. So, yeah, trying to, trying to show quick page mock-ups, but making it clear that this is very quick. So trying to show them in a calendar 
time scale that's very quick, like the next day. Look, this is just a quick, it's, you know, this is the kind of direction mm. we're going in. Um, but making them understand that you know, this isn't a finished product in any way and um, you know, don't expect it to be all glossy. We're just trying to get the direction right. I, I, I think see, that is... No, sorry, go ahead, Paul. I was just going to say, I've seen you actually do that in the room with them, Lee. Um, which seems to have worked quite well, where where you're exploring ideas there and then, um, because then that does yeah. lower their expectations. Well, I found myself on conference calls, you know, designing things. What they might think of as a big decision is often a simple decision and, and vice versa. What they think is easy quite often isn't. You just change all the spacing. Um, if you're doing that in a static um design tool that could take a little while um, but if you're doing it in code it's quite quick but changing the colors might be quick in both approaches so quite often on calls I am showing if they say yeah, well, I don't know about that color well look I've changed it and refresh and oh right yeah that could have saved mm. um, a lot of toing and froing and they right. can kind of be they feel like they're more involved in the whole process mm. Um, so I do a lot of designing on conference <laughs> calls I, I think that's really one of the keys I mean it's something that I, it just sort of in developing our own process, um, I work really hard to teach clients about this way of working so that we're used to answering small questions. Mm. Um, so let's focus in on these few details and, and work on those together. And now we're going to go to the next iteration and that's going to try and solve a few more things building on these, these early decisions that we made. And the, the hardest part to navigate in our, ex, just in my experience so far is when you, you have this great relationship with the stakeholders that are in the room, bringing <laughs> them along, but we haven't had the ultimately responsible and uh, signatory stakeholder, <laughs> you know, the one who's ultimately going to sign the check has not been in the room they haven't been brought along on that journey that education and that participation all they're looking at is whatever's been put in front of them at that time and sometimes it's without you even knowing it so and that's what, where what things you, can go off the rails so what do you do about that i try and and uh approach it from two directions one um is to try and uh, emulate Mike Montero just a little bit and and be very clear at the very beginning about who who's going to say no or yes to this ultimately and make sure that we've identified who the ultimate approving party is and talk with our immediate stakeholder if it's not them about at what points do we bring things to these people um, so that we can be sure that we're moving ahead in the right way and that, so that takes a little bit of effort uh, to get the clients to understand that this is really critical and not really all that negotiable, um, yeah. that we have to identify who those people are, or simply have it noted that if you decide, client stakeholder, that you would prefer to not take this to your CEO until the very last minute, that that's fine. Um, but if they say they want to start over again, um, mm -hmm. that is on mm -hmm. your bill. Yeah. And you know, as long as that's clear, I don't care how many times you want us to redo it. That's okay. It's mm -hmm. not efficient. It's not going to be pleasant for you or for us, really, but we'll get there. Um, just know that we foresee this as a stumbling block. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the other side of that is, um, is to be more emphatic about being present when things are presented so that you can have the chance to talk them through a little bit of the backstory and hear what their objections may be firsthand. Because if you can't mm. hear what they're saying, it's very hard to get to the, the why of the objection. And that's so true. I mean, because what often happens in my experience in that scenario is that, you know, they, they might say something like, oh, I'm not very keen on the blue. And so then the, the well, A, you don't know why, you know, what's the problem with the blue? What's the underlying issue there, as you say? But B, also the, your client, the person you're dealing with comes back and instead of saying they weren't very keen on the blue, they come back and say, change the blue, which is a very different thing to what they actually said. You right. know, there was a conversation to be had there and you 
just weren't involved in it. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. One thing I do like is a, a methodology that Headscape uses in those presentations, um, which, Lee, you do a lot of, which is creating videos and presenting stuff in video format where they can't look at it without hearing some of the backstory. Right. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They can't see, they can't just look at the design. They, they you, you're leading mm. them through into the design with the video. Well, I suppose they could skip. Yeah, they yeah. could. But, <laughs> you know. And of course, the other thing is when they then hand that around to other people, those other people get the backstory as well, which is right. another advantage. So. No, that's a good idea. Actually, my friend Steve Cross actually talked about doing that a while ago. I think he started doing that on some of his own projects and had mm. really good luck with it. Mm. Well, what made me think of it is I've, I've just literally done it today. <laughs> that's, that's what I've been doing earlier today. So it was front and center in my mind. Anyway, we, we could go on forever because actually this is really interesting. But, but um, Jason is a busy man. He's got other things to do. And to be, to be honest... So have you, dear listener. Um, but we, we'll talk about um, Full Story and then we'll do a, a little bit of wrapping up. Um, Full Story is our other sponsor and is basically the best session recorded that you will get out there. Um, you know, so it, it actually enables you to watch and see how people um, interact with your products and services. Um, so you can have all kinds of scenarios where that's going to be absolutely um, invaluable. So, for example, um, there was one company uh, that had a problem in their free product. They had a large banner promoting, uh, encouraging people to upgrade, but they continued to get isolated feedback from customers saying that they couldn't figure out how to upgrade despite this this big bang banner so they had no context to really understand how people were missing this banner that seemed so obvious to them um, so they set up full stories filter to review users who arrived on that page with the intent of upgrading and upon viewing those various user sessions they realized that um, experienced users went through to um, the upgrade that the, the experience of doing that upgrade wasn't as straightforward as simply clicking on the banner. There was also many steps for them to go through before they got as far as clicking up the banner. And so Full Story kind of helped reveal this whole problem that they, they just weren't seeing the entirety of. They were just getting very uh, a snapshot of, of fragmented user feedback. Um, so they were able to change the way they operated and that massively increased the number of upgrades they had. So there's loads of stories like that. Um, That's great. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a great tool. If, you, if, you, if you've never used it, give it a go. You can sign up and get one month um, uh, for their pro account for free. No need to enter a credit card. And after that one month, um, it'll continue to work. It'll just only record a thousand sessions per month instead of all of them. Um, it's a tool that I've used a lot personally, which is why I'm really pleased that they're on the show so to get that um that deal go to fullstory.com forward slash boag b-o-a-g all right um i just wanted to share a couple of um things for you to check out related to today's podcast um i always try and give you a bit of further reading to go with it um so the two articles i picked out today um is how to adopt an iterative approach to user experience design which outlines many of, of uh, Jason's points about building in Drupal and that kind of thing, um, but also that idea of, of, of iterating design and content side by side within a content management system or such like. So to find out more about that, you can go to boagworld.com forward slash design forward slash iterative dash UI dash design. Um, there was another article that I found which was um, I really enjoyed on the subject, which is why having a UI UX workflow is awesome and how to build yours. Unfortunately, it's got a ridiculously long URL. It's a medium URL, so I couldn't be bothered to shorten it. I don't care that much about this show. I'm not that <laughs> professional. So just check out the show notes uh, by going to boagworld.com. You should find them on the homepage uh, or you can easily look in the podcast section um, and you'll find a link to that article. It's really worth reading. Great advice about how to create a better workflow and I recommend checking it out. So hopefully you found um, this week's show useful. I'd encourage you to take some next steps with this, to, to actually take some time to step back from your um, the way that you work, the way that you operate um, and ask yourself, 
Are you working in the most efficient way possible? Are there improvements you could make? How can you make, for example, we didn't even touch on this, you know, how can you make usability testing um, right. more integrated every step of the way as you work, you know, and maybe what we were saying about stakeholders as well, of how can you introduce them to the process, that, you know, and, and involve them and educate them through it. So, so lots to think about. Go on, Jason. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to add to that because one of the things that we found very helpful when introducing style tiles was mm. that we created a document about what style tiles are yeah. and how to work with them. And we would give that to the client before mm -hmm. we presented the style tiles. So like a day or two ahead of time, we would give them this thing to read that sort of gave them an idea of what to expect. Mm. And, and that really helped bring them along. And I, and I think that just this notion of from the very first meeting, setting up expectations mm -hmm. really goes a long way to, to keeping people um, in the loop. And you, you really want this sort of success by a thousand yeses. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, you just want to keep building that trust. Um, yeah. So that way, you know, if you have a misstep along the way, um, you've had all of these successful interactions to fall back on uh, to know that you're not really that far off. You just have to go back one or two steps and uh, to where it was really working and then just kind of figure out where things kind of diverged a bit. Mm. Uh, and again, that explanation of, you know, what is a style tile, mood board, etc. That's the kind of thing I'll try and put into a video so they have to go through that preamble right. <laughs> before they get to seeing the thing and they don't have to read yeah. anything. So again, a video might yeah, be helpful, that's Yeah, that's a really great idea. Across. I like that. Because what you can do is you can do things like, well... You know, on a video, before you show the design, you, you first will reiterate the journey that you've been on. These were the success criteria that we agreed. This was the style tile we agreed on. This was the wireframing and the visual hierarchy and the user audience. And see how these things will build one on another to ta -da, this design that reflects everything that we've been talking about so far. And, and of course, the great thing is that educates people. Um, but at the same time, as well as educating them, it's also saying, look, this is just the next natural step. That yes by a thousand, you know, oh, sorry, uh, approval <laughs> by a thousand yeses is, is absolutely spot on. Anyway, we, we're starting the whole conversation again. Jason, that's your fault. As, puni as punishment for kicking off the conversation again, you've got to be Marcus and tell a joke. Do you have a joke? I do. Oh, I've, I've, this is the best part of the show, that and sort of diverting you into talking about web fonts at the beginning. Yeah, so that, I that feel was like good. I'm succeeding on all marks today. Yeah, very good. Well done. Distraction okay. and jokes. Okay. Why did Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon never find the font of youth when he was exploring America for the first time in 1513? See, immediately, this is a lot more intellectual than any joke <laughs> we would ever get from Marcus. Why? It Go on. Why? Why was that? Because Comic Sans wasn't designed until 1995. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. <laughs> the, the the font of youth. Font of youth. Oh, yeah. I see. At least Lee got it. I had a little bit of satisfaction there. <laughs> well, I was going to tell you a joke about Sean Connery's brother's newborn daughter. Oh, go on then. But it's a little niche. Oh no! You probably had to have a Scottish accent. You should have done the Sean whole Connery thing impression with a Scottish I, accent. I didn't have time to practice that. No, you were you were caught off guard. I think that was stolen from Bruce Lawson, by the way. I never thought I would say this, but I think it's a good job Marcus is back next week. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to have you both on the show. It's good to have you know actual real designers and and people that know what they're talking about, rather than Marcus, who I still don't know what he does. Um, oh, he says he's a designer. Now. Oh, does he? Oh, will some <laughs> will someone please knock that out of him? That isn't allowed. So, um, if you fancy um, joining in and continuing the conversation about what we've talked about today, and indeed a whole lot more, um, then join our Slack channel. Um, I'm really enjoying our Slack channel. It, it keeps me entertained. You can go to boagworld.com/slacking, and you too can waste the majority of your working day. Um, next week, we've got Ed that we were talking about um, earlier, the designer that can't leave Photoshop. Um, and that's such a horrible way to describe him. Um, and uh, Dan, both of which from Headscape are joining us next week. And we're going to get into responsive design. Um, and it, it's kind of 
gone off the boil as the cool trendy topic to talk about but there's still a lot we can learn about responsive design um, just because you make a site that rescales doesn't mean it's necessarily responsive so we'll get into that next week but for now thank you Jason thank you Lee and thank you for listening bye bye